climate change is going to be the biggest problem in terms of global health. It becomes a moment for social change and it becomes a moment where we all as a group can get together and think about how do we want the world to be, you know, coming out of this, what is the better place we can get to. The recent history of the world is a world of crisis. Black mothers deserve attention and they deserve to be center stage. That gives me hope. If uh, the communities, the disciplines, the populations come together, we can achieve anything. Welcome to Aftershocks, our podcast for the 2023 edition of The Scholar. Welcome to The Scholars Podcast. My name is Seetha, and today I'll be joined by Ella McPherson, who is an Associate Professor of the Sociology of New Media and Digital Technology, and the new Deputy Head of the School of Humanities and the Social Sciences here at the University of Cambridge. Ella is currently co-director of the Centre of Governance and Human Rights and leads The Whistle, an academic startup focused on social change through technology. She was also a 2004 Gates Scholar where she completed her PhD in social and political science. And it's my great pleasure to welcome her today and to speak with her on her work and her research. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Ella. Thank you so much, Sita. It's a pleasure to be here. It's yeah, amazing to think back to 2004, being a Gates Scholar. So I guess my first question is kind of a big one. Uh, but a very important one. As you know, our theme for 2023, The Scholar magazine, is Aftershocks Navigating a World of Crisis. And I was wondering how you would really define crisis in your field. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think crisis is very much on the public consciousness. Um, But I was thinking about your question in relation to sociology. And I think what it made me realize is how, how, how much there is in common between sort of the effects of crisis and what sociology in some ways is trying to do. And I'm not talking about the horrible stuff. I mean, crisis is horrible. It disrupts our everyday lives. It um, can, you know, disrupt our ontological, ontological security, like, you know, their way of, you know, our, our feelings about being secure in the world. But crisis also has this effect, which is, um, people call it the silver lining, I think, in some ways. And I think that part of crisis is very much what sociology as a discipline is trying to do. So um, crisis and sociology both reveal um, the kind of taken for granted parts of society and, and sort of really bring them to the surface, bring them to the fore and allow us to question them. And in seeing these taken for granted elements of society in which power is often shaped these taken for granted elements, um, then we are able to um, reevaluate them and it becomes a moment for social change and it becomes a moment where we all as a group can get together and think about how do we want the world to be you know coming out of this what is the better place we can get to so I think we saw this in the pandemic with you know for example um, the very stark realization of how absolutely crucial essential workers are to our societies and how little they are paid for the amazing work they do you know and this was a big in the national conversation and this this is the kind of thing that you know sociology would be trying to show is you know examine why is it that care workers um are rewarded less than other kinds of workers sort of like you know money workers or justice workers and um and um so i think in a way um sort of the after effects of crisis are quite similar to kind of a sociological methodology of you know denaturalizing denormalizing um, elements of our society that really have sort of um, 
faded into the background become kind of every day, but really we should be questioning these things. So there's that strange parallel between both that kind of, you know, space and time in the world of crisis and also the discipline of sociology. Yeah, I really love what you said and and your kind of framework of thinking through crisis and its parallels with sociology. And I like this idea because I think sometimes, especially when we were brainstorming this theme, we were thinking a lot about ruptures and the negativity of crisis. But I like what you said about how it brings things to the surface, how it there's an opportunity in crisis as well. And I guess I wanted specifically, if we can look into your work, what sort of silver linings or opportunities have you noticed come out? For example, if we're taking either the recent sort of uh, Black Lives Matter protests or the pandemic, you know, with your work with ending everyday racism or your work with other projects, what have these aftershocks, these more potentially positive or negative aftershocks of these particular crises and events been? Yeah, thank you. I was thinking about, um, you know, both the sort of situation of being locked down and the rise of the Black Lives Matters movement, which happened, you know, very in a, in a parallel fashion. Um, and I have been reflecting a lot on what that means for digital witnessing, say, um, and our understanding of what people are doing when they are, um, you know, making themselves um, present and speaking and advocating online, like what is that? Um, and I think there's two two different. I mean, there's, there's so many things that have come out of that, but I think there's two sort of more um, theoretical um, dimensions that I think emerge from um, particularly thinking about Black Lives Matter um, uh, online and then how that has impacted our work in, in everyday racism as well. Um, so one of the things that uh, we have seen in the space of digital activism. So um, it's very much this idea, you see this discourse of clicktivism, right? Um, or slacktivism, which is this idea that people doing stuff online, like sharing and liking and tweeting or whatever um, about a political cause um, or a social justice cause, et cetera, that that is sort of second rate activism, that real activism is in-person activism and that slacktivism um, is, you know, for slackers, it's for people who don't want to make the effort and they do it online. Now we know, we know that that is, you know, first of all, it, that sort of is a, it's a, it's a discrediting discourse basically. And it wipes out um, all of the efforts that we see in the digital space. And it also, um, it doesn't wipe it out, but it sort of discredits it. And it also um, doesn't take account of the fact that for many people, it is the option for protesting and being visible, right? They, you know, people who are too busy, people who, for whom going in the streets is not possible, um, people who have caring responsibilities. Um, so that it is a way, it's a new way for people to be political for whom getting to the streets is really hard. Um, obviously in the pandemic, that was the case for like the vast majority of us, um, even though of course there were in-person protests. Um, and I think one of the things that the power of that sort of hashtag BLM movement did was to show actually this is, um, Act, this is real activism. This is, this should be protected by the right to the freedom of peaceful assembly. Like this is actually a human right is we're getting together online and we're, we're having a common cause. Right. And I think um, what that, I think in my view, that movement kind of ended that conversation of slacktivism and clicktivism. Right. Um, and I think that was really important because, you know, you do still, sometimes still hear it. And I, you know, one of the questions I've had about that discrediting discourse is sort of like, where did it come from, right? And um, 
I've done a bit of work looking into kind of tracing it. And it seems that, you know, that idea comes from those who are powerful in the public sphere. And it ends up being a way to discredit people who are challenging from below and saying, yeah, you're trying out this new thing, but it's really just, you know, it's, you're not really making an effort. So it doesn't count. So we don't have to listen to you. Mm -hmm. Right. But so actually getting rid of that discourse of clicktivism and slacktivism has had a massive re-legitimizing effect on all kinds of online activism. So that's in, in a way that's, I mean, the, the kind of many effects of that movement, but a kind of a broad sort of theoretical or discursive effects or practice based effect of that um, movement has been the eradication of that and sort of, you know, giving more prominence to this as a kind of a valid political action protected by human rights. Um, and I think there was another dimension um, that it was something that had always been part of our end everyday racism project, which, which, as you know, is this, um, it's an anonymous digital um, witnessing a platform where people in our community can report on incidences of racism that they've experienced themselves or witnessed happening to somebody else. Um, and from early on in the project, it became really clear that um, the technology was one small part of what actually you know, the more important sort of dimension of this of this project, which is around care and solidarity. And so um, a question that comes up for us a lot in that project is like, when you bring in technology in a, into a witnessing project, like what do you gain, but what do you lose, right? So, um, and you know, one thing you gain is that it's, it's a way to collect voice together that otherwise might be difficult to collect. So whether that is because you're locked down and so you're able to be online on, on Twitter or whether it's on, on complicated or difficult to talk about topics or whether it's about, you know, hard to reach populations you're able to get information that you didn't have before, collective voice. But at the same time, you know, what do you lose? And we are so wary of losing um, solidarity, right? So that you bring in, if you're speaking to a machine, you know, there's, you can't immediately have solidarity back like when you're speaking with a human. And so one of our concerns with that project is how do you build solidarity building into the process of digital witnessing, right? And actually a lot of that is about um, being together while doing it, right? Um, and making space to talk about it. Um, so, so the end goal of that project is um, obviously to, um, yeah, make space to talk about racism and also to introduce ways of, um, more ways of combating racism with the, the goal of ending every racism. Um, but there's also a, a equally important goal, which is about building solidarity, building community and, you know, building spaces for care. Um, and I think that having to be online um, in the pandemic um, was a reminder of how important that sort of community surrounding all of our online political activism is. I think what you were saying about the way that, for example, like my MPhil research was looking at solidarity protest movements in the Lebanese diaspora in France. And a lot of the critique of solidarity protest movements was it's a form of slacktivism or it's very performative activism because a lot of their activism was online. And it was really interesting to me what you said in terms of um, the role of uh, changing our sort of frameworks as well of what we're considering activism and, and thinking about these discrediting discourses and thinking and really interrogating the power structures that are behind them. Because I think 
what what I I really noticed within within my research was the fact that actually visibility and this idea of witnessing actually but a slightly different idea of witnessing to what you're dealing with in the everyday racism project but this idea of visibility and the power of visibility um, through online influence through online f- through virality through um, brought in this whole new rep yeah repertoire of resistance a whole new way that we could start to think about social movements and the way that they um um, they could spread and amplify what was going on in the ground. And, and people really talked about it in that way. It was like, you know, they wanted things to go viral. They were framing the like Instagram photos of like the, the Eiffel Tower and the uh, Lebanese flag for the aesthetic so that the chance of it kind of being reshared uh, and amplifying. So people were thinking it was present on people's news feeds and people were thinking about Lebanon. So I think there are so many interesting things of what you said. It's like because these things have been uh, happening in these constraints, whether that's the pandemic or um, that's, you know, a diasporic space or whatever it is, have produced new ways of kind of understanding the potential of different strategies of resistance. I think that's so interesting about your, your informants who were sort of strategically thinking about how to like, you know, make a post that's going to go viral. And I think that's really important because I think that's about pragmatics, right? And so, um, you know, we all have our ideals, but actually if you, you bring them into the, the world and you try to, you know, pursue them, you often have to make compromises. And so um, I have seen this as well, which is where, you know, human rights advocates are like, okay, to get our message out, we have to shape it to the, what the platform rewards. So what is the platform going to reward? What do people want to see? But also what does the algorithm itself decide yes, exactly. should be visible? And therefore, what do we have to make in order for that to happen, mm-hmm. right? And this is what I love about your work is you're thinking about the potential of technology and the risks and, and the problems and all of these things. And it's this fine balance because it, it's it's a constantly evolving space. And, and I think that's the, the thing with especially with digital activism is we don't know what <laughs> what the next five, 10, 15 years are going to kind of uh, hold. I mean, I, I think. I, I really wanted to go back to what you were talking about with um, this notion of witnessing um, because I found it, I find it really interesting, this notion of digital witnessing um, and in, in all of your work, your work with The Whistle, um, your work specifically with uh, Ending Everyday Racism. And I was just wondering if you could reflect a bit on the role of digital tools in monitoring and addressing human rights rights violations and with this notion of like visibility and amplification and and specifically how digital tools can be tools of amplification um how how can we use uh you know digital tools to amplify testimony yeah thank you i think it's interesting because i think amplification is one of a variety of things that are going on in terms of you know how these tools can be used so um it's funny because I think one of the things I've come to realize in this kind of big project I've been doing on human rights fact finding in the digital age is that um, almost, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, so we are seeing um, all these new opportunities for getting um, uh, digital evidence of human rights violations and they're fascinating, right? They're really interesting. You know, it started, I mean, it was going on before this, but it really took off um, in the, um, conflict in Syria where, you know, people couldn't get in there to figure out what was going on, but all of this, um, civilian witness evidence was coming out on YouTube, say, um, 
And then, um, we, you know, there's been really massive developments with things like satellite images and using them to um, cross-reference social media videos. And there's databases that you can use where you can look at the kind of position of the, say, the moon or the sun or the weather, what the weather was, and, and use that to corroborate evidence. Um, and um, being able to also just reach out and find people on the grounds um, because they've said they were there and then being able to talk to them and interview them. I think all of that has been like a massive step change um, with two other colleagues, uh, Matt Mahmoudi and Isabel Gannett Thornton. I've written a chapter which is about how this is like a knowledge controversy where mm. basically um, human rights fact-finding had a kind of established practice of people on the ground doing interviews and suddenly these technologies really challenged, it's a bit like we were talking about with crisis, like really challenged all the established ways of, you know, collecting data, what a source was, you know, um, presenting data, um, who could do it, who could do, who could be an analyst or an investigator. Um, so that there's been a really massive professional change in how human rights evidence is gathered. Um, but, you know, what is it ultimately for? It's ultimately to stop human rights violations. And we've seen this kind of arms race where, um, you know, regimes are really cognizant of these practices and sort of tracking them and developing um, uh, sort of ways to counter these accusations that are just as sophisticated as the ways of collecting the data itself. So, and um, so, for example, um, having, you know, um, uh, social media accounts to, with fake news or accusing, um, discrediting um, organizations for their their practices. Like I remember, this is more humanitarian, but the um, white helmets um, were trying in, in Syria, you know, the kind of rescue organization, they were trying to um, go viral, to, back to our earlier point. And so they did a mannequin video, which um, which was a meme kind of on social media Few years ago right which is mm -hmm. where you basically everyone stays completely still and someone goes around with a camera and videos it as if they're kind of mannequins and so they did a mock rescue mannequin video and um this was an attempt to like latch on to those kind mm -hmm. of viral languages and instead what happened was um a government started saying well how can you believe anything they say look they make fake news like that was a fake video <laughs> and so um you see this kind of sophisticated arms race in terms of, you know, faking data or making discrediting arguments against it. Um, but I, you also have this problem, which I think people in the human rights space are concerned with, which is there's an escalation of evidentiary requirements. So, you know, um, there's, an, there's an organization that Goldsmith is doing really cool work called Forensic Architecture, where they can almost recreate the spaces of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, weapons attacks or various other disasters and um, human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law. Um, and you can you can almost sort of like, it's almost like you're there. It's so well recreated, you know. Um, and um, I've also seen colleagues working on um, sort of VR versions, right? So you're putting on the headset and you're suddenly in a bombed out space um, in a city. Um, in Raqqa, for example, Amnesty did a project where they had that, where you could be in a bombed out apartment building in Raqqa. And there was a kind of, you know, you could, you were told this is where the bathroom was, this is where the bedroom was. It's really powerful. And the question becomes like, you know, are we raising the bar too high so that you have to have all of this, you know, really cool evidence to gain the attention of lawmakers to kind of 
you know, gain the attention of publics. And I think that is a, that's a really open question for the human rights community using these tools. Yeah, I think that's, that's really, really interesting. And I think it leads on to my uh, next question, which is, you know, your work has really foregrounded the immense potential of these technologies as, as tools of, um, to combat human rights violations. But I wondered how you personally navigate the potential risks associated with your field and the fact that technologies can exactly uh, precipitate or exacerbate these crises. And I'm thinking in particular, like, how do you build in to the technologies themselves, like adequate protection, especially when you're dealing with people's data or, um, you know, you're working with activists, you know, is that something that you struggle with? Is that, you know, as in this arms race, like how do you as a researcher, you know, protect the people that you're trying to, um, to look after and, and amplify? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I think, um, I think th there's almost two different things I want to say about it. One is about this idea of technological risk. Um, and the other is about, you know, I think one of the questions has to be, do we even use these technologies in the first place, right? There is a risk. And I think what happened in the human rights space was that there was a rush to adopt um, early on, I'm talking about, I don't know, early 2000s, um and then again this kind of arms race with the gov governments that were sort of building kind of you know traps digital traps um there was this example not too long ago of um a a, a, a sort of digital fakery ngo right so an ngo that wasn't real but they had a really great web presence right like a website and was on social media and all of this stuff and was networking with other ngos saying hey like let's work on this they were looking at um uh, labor rights and human rights violations in Qatar. And they were saying, why don't we all get together and we can do a campaign together. And in doing so, starting to collect the information of all these other activists working in the space, right? And then was exposed as being a fake NGO. Like, and no one's really sure who started it, but it was, you know, sort of doing on the ground digital, I mean, physical sleuthing, like going to where they said their headquarters was and there was nobody there, there was nothing there. Um, and looking into the backgrounds of the people who were supposed to be working there, they figured out this wasn't particularly real. Uh, it wasn't real at all. Um, and so um, what I think what happened is that, you know, I always think about the human rights world as being kind of at the, the kind of cutting edge, the kind of canary in the coal mine case for all of us and our lives online and sort of risk and safety and uh, privacy, et cetera because it's a very high stakes area, right? Um, and so, you know, I think the human rights community really has majorly stepped back from using tech mm. and particularly big tech because of that kind of corporate um, surveillance imperative, mm. which really runs against what they're trying to do in the human rights space, right? So, mm. um, so I think one question is, um, you know, how do you think of getting, you know, building technologies that don't have other, motives in them that, you know, either lead to sort of compromising with a political actor and giving them data or, um, you know, having this kind of corporate um, surveillance, uh, you know, data gathering mode that, you know, by mistake can expose people, right? Um, and I think, you know, there is an interesting move in sort of grassroots tech design um, and um, where, you know, organizations can build technology for their own uses, but that is so resource intensive. It requires a lot of knowledge. It requires a lot of time. It requires 
I, I'm always astonished by how long it takes to build things. You know, you have this idea and you're like, oh, the code will do it. But actually coding is really, really, really difficult, really intricate, really labor intensive. Um, and so it is this sort of situation where, you know, you might want to build from the grassroots, but it's very, very hard. Um, so that's the whole sort of dimension of, you know, which technologies do you use? Do you use technologies at all? And in fact, um, I've been looking also at neo-Luddite movements, so people who are withdrawing completely from technology um, or, or partially, but, but always because fundamentally, it's not because they don't, they, they're sort of, you know, they're portrayed in the literature, they're portrayed in our common understanding as people who are sort of silly and they'll eventually catch on to what the point of all this technology and, and they'll get an iPhone and they'll, you know, they'll get on, they'll start using Zoom and, but, um, so they're kind of underappreciated. And actually these groups are playing a really important critical function in our society, which is exposing and, and sort of considering how the norms of these technologies that are suddenly coming into our homes, our work, um, might be really running against and counteracting the things that we hold dear, right? And so that's why they are withdrawing from technology. And I think one of the things that really interests me is, is again, this discourse, kind of like the discourse around clicktivism, like who is positioning these people as sort of neo-Luddites in the pejorative sense? Actually, the Luddites were a really amazing kind of vibrant movement that was all about protecting community. But how did that become a pejorative term? Who is it who's calling these people neo-Luddites now? Um, and actually, how might we think about reframing that so that their critique can get a better platform? So that's one thing. Another thing about risk is, um, I think it's interesting. I think there is this sort of, um, this is a classic media sociology concept, the idea of the moral panic, right? And I think, um, that built around all these new technological developments is this cycle of moral panic. And it's kind of accelerating because we keep having more and more and more technological developments. But every time it's sort of this, as a media sociologist, I kind of sit back and I watch this kind of classic cycle <laughs> go through, which is that, um, uh, you know, these new technologies are um, seen as being, you know, sort of terrifying and super risky and they're going to give power to people who didn't have power before through tricking us so deep fakes for example um and now i think chat gpt is a new one right so um in talking with human rights fact finders um you know they do think about deep fakes they do worry that you know some a government or some malevolent agent might you know get use um deep fake technology to sort of try to create a stir around, you know, another politician saying something they never said, um, or um, some kind of human rights, you know, some kind of other interpretation of a situation of human rights violations, etc. Um, but still in the day to day work of human rights fact finding that is a that is a tiny problem that basically doesn't appear what is actually appearing is the stuff that muddies basically evidence. So someone reusing a video of a, you know, a, a police violence at a protest, you know, saying it, it would happen on this day, but it actually happened on that day, or, you know, these kinds of sort of verification problems that are sort of, you know, low tech, but you really have to get them clear in order to build a human rights case, right? So, mm -hmm. so there's this kind of total excitement and fear around these new technologies. And I've seen this happen in, you know, I've seen um, sort of evidentiary spaces where people come to give expert testimony on what deep fakes are or what holograms are in human rights and everyone's sitting there at the table like oh my god this is shocking this is unbelievable 
And I get that. I feel the same way, but I have to remind myself, this is part of that hype cycle. Mm. And mm. I think we're seeing that with chat GPT mm-hmm. now where people are very worried that again, it's going to be a, a source of kind of fakery, right? Mm. That, you know, particularly in the academic space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have to sort of sit tight and know that this will kind of calm down and it's probably not going to be nearly as extreme as we think it is. And, mm. um, you know, things are largely going to stay the same. I think I wanted to pull in on this idea of fakery because it's something that we've actually talked about in another podcast with another alumni, mm. um, Rajiv Chowdhury, uh, who is a professor of global health, was the fact that there was like an infodemic at the same time that there was a pandemic and that our relationship yeah. to facts has changed in our relationship to science in the way that social media um, really amplified that as well during the pandemic. And I I wonder what your reflections were on the way that our relationship to factual knowledge has changed after the pandemic or this notion of fact and fakery. Um, But also like what, yeah, do you, does that worry you? Do you feel like what, what reflections do you have in the aftermath of, of the pandemic about these sorts of topics? Um, yeah, you know, I'm struggling with figuring this out because it's so complicated. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I think is really important is to take alternative understandings of what's going on very seriously. So I think one of the problems we see is that people like just denounce fake news, just say fake news is terrible. Oh my gosh, all that stuff about, you know, 5G giving us COVID and we have to, you know, burn the towers is terrible. Like, and I think that is a really unhelpful response. And yet it is the overwhelming response in the public sphere and political responses. And even sort of like tech, the tech solutionism here is like, let's build like algorithms that can detect fake news and all that. And I think it's almost coming about it very much the, you know, the wrong way it's making, it's going to make it worse. And one of the things I look at in my research is how our reactions to fake news, to digital fakery, either that we don't want to be duped or we don't want to be mistaken as a duper, right? Um, how those things are actually very harmful for democracy too, right? And so um, I would like to shift the dialogue. I would like us to shift the dialogue to be looking more at critically engaging with the ways that we respond to the, the threat of fakes, right? Um, so there's two parts to that. One is I think taking much more seriously alternative understandings and thinking about where they come from. So, you know, you can read in some weird way, you can totally see how, if you already don't trust the state, that this idea that everyone, there's this sort of disease that's arrived and everyone has to stay in their houses and, you know, um, everyone, you know, you can be arrested for getting close to the person on a park bench, like that kind of stuff, you know you can see how that sounds itself like a big fake, right? And, and so thinking about when these things surface, they are indications of where the system has failed people is one thing, right? Um, and not, so it's taking, it's taking those views seriously and not dismissing them as sort of conspiracy theorists. I think that's very harmful. Um, as much as in some ways, some of these conspiracies are very challenging to the kind of democracy that we that we want to have, but still it's taking them very seriously as, as one thing. And the other thing is taking very seriously how we react and thinking about the consequences our reactions have for our democracy as well. So I'm thinking, for example, um, you know, in my research, one, well, there's a few different things. The one thing I found was obviously there is this idea of we need to verify, like, and there's certain people who can verify because we have the methodology. And, um, 
so here I'm thinking about journalists, human rights fact finders, um, humanitarian workers who work with evidence, um, academics, technologists, et cetera, who, who've been working together very hard on figuring out ways, like sort of accepted practices for verifying digital evidence, um, which is great because we need to be able to verify it, but also we need to think about how these, which is essentially in its epistemological practices, how they exclude, right? How they exclude certain registers of knowledge production and how they therefore exclude certain people, right? And um, so if we think, for example, having a digital footprint makes it easier to be verified as a source, right? And that becomes quite important in the process of who, what, where, when, why. Mm. Um, and so if you are someone who has a job and therefore you're featured on your institution's website, it's easier for people who are trying to verify what you're saying to get a sense of who you are and why you might be saying that, right? If you're someone without a digital footprint and you come out of nowhere, it doesn't matter how true your evidence is. If you can't mm. kind of prove who you are or you don't really know how to prove where it happened, like you don't know, um, you don't know that they need to be able to geolocate. So you don't know to sort of pan the horizon for buildings or something. It, you know, it makes it much, much harder to verify your work. And if in the context of pressurized resources, these things start to matter. So our actions that we take to protect us from fake news end up, while including some voices, excluding others. And we need to be paying attention to that. And I think sometimes risk is overwhelming and, and we lose other values when risk is there. So if we, we are committed to pluralism, we might sacrifice that because the risk is so great, right? The risk of fake news is so great. Um, and so I think, you know, shifting that conversation to thinking about, you know, who is saying what they're saying and why are they saying it? And what's the broader context of that? And also thinking about what's our reaction to this situation and how is that um, itself creating particularly exclusionary um, epistemological and, and thus sort of population effects. Like, I think that is really key to the conversation around facts and fakes um, that we're living through today. Yeah, I think that's such a that's a really useful framework to think about what's going on at the moment because and I I guess it's it's you know as a sociologist you're attending to these kind of questions of power and and what these it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation like what what is crisis revealing like what are these things revealing and what do they say and what are the actual underlying problems that need to be addressed and so I think it's 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 such a refreshing perspective on on crisis and and on these kind of um things that we're confronting day to day with the digital world. Um, so thank you so much for that. I guess my final question is to really return back to the work, your work in the university and, and to think through some of the changes that have happened. And as we know, you know, um, the pandemic has ushered in an enormous amount of changes regarding digital learning and connectivity in the classroom and, you know, the ethics around communication technologies. And I wonder if in your role um, as deputy head of Cambridge's School of the Humanities and the Social Sciences, if you have any reflections on how the university classroom has changed in the aftermath of the pandemic. Yeah, that's such a live question because I think, um, you know, I have a colleague who says, we can't go back to 2019. We'll never go back there, but we have to figure out what balance we want to have between that sort of lockdown learning and, you know, being in the classroom. And, and what, what we've recently done a really big survey of um, lecturers, teaching administrators and students in, in the school. And um, we're analyzing that right now. And one of the really key findings um, is that when you bring technology into the classroom, it changes things, it's unavoidable. And so 
if the technology comes first, then technology becomes the tail that wags the dog of pedagogy, right? So no matter what you do, technology will force you to sort of, will direct you in other ways, right? So you really need to think through the pedagogical aims first and then think if the technology helps you get there or doesn't help you get there. So um, for example, we also asked lecturers say, you know, what are your aims? What are your pedagogical aims with the lecture? And you had a lot of people saying, well, transmission of knowledge. And actually, you know, bringing lecture recording into the classroom supports that, that helps that. But other, um, other aims were things like, um, you know, develop critical engagement and, you know, at, you know the lecture is a springboard for independent study. And the lecture helps us build kind of a community where we can think through difficult things together. And so lecture recording actually really works against those kinds of aims, right? Um, because um, it, it turns the lecture, someone said to me, uh, you know, we've been working for so many years at getting away from the sage on the stage model in terms of, you know, education. And, and the recorded lecture pushes you right back on the stage as a sage, right? And actually that is, you know, that is not helpful if your aims are something else, your pedagogical aims are something else. And I think, um, something that we really have to balance is like, how do we get this right? How, now that we have a choice in the pandemic, we didn't have a choice, but now that we have a choice, how do we create a learning environment that keeps pedagogy, pedagogical aims at the forefront and uses technology to help our students, to help our staff where it does actually do that. But we don't use technology for technology's sake. We don't use it just because it's there or just because it's, you know, the latest thing in, in, in learning, right? In teaching and learning. Um, but so I think that challenge of, of thinking through these, um, you know, returning again, it's the idea of it surfaces things you start taking for granted. So, you know, had I thought about my aims in a lecture very explicitly recently? No, not until this happened. And I had to really think about what's happening here. Right. Um, so I think that's really, that's been a really interesting learning. And another really interesting learning is also, um, you know, this idea of what, what is coming into the classroom when we bring technology in to a certain extent you know there's technology is there no matter what because everyone has phones in their bags and i mean technology is there but when we explicitly bring it in what does it bring with it and there's this um uh this concept called the domestication of technology with um by silverstone and haddon um and you know one of the things they say is technology when it's communication technology becomes a portal into a, an otherwise closed space to outside norms Right. So they talk about how kind of capitalism comes into your house through technology. Think about it with the Alexa speaker that's constantly offering you new things to buy or pay for or subscribe to. Um, and so when we invite technology and in explicitly, we're also inviting in the norms of that technology. And I think we really don't understand exactly, you know, we, we just haven't had time to think about what are the norms behind the common technologies we use in the classroom? You know, are they profit models? What happens with the data? you know, um, sort of what are their relations, relationships to governments? We just don't know. We haven't thought about that, which is a quite common occurrence actually uh, with people's use of technology. They think about other users, but they don't think about the intermediary technology itself and the norms and aims that it has. So I think that's a piece of work we need to do and keep doing um, if we want to invite technologies in. No, thank you so much, Ella. Thank you for a brilliant conversation I feel like I have a lot to think through um, and I'm sure our listeners do too so thank you so much for your time and uh, your reflections and uh, yeah thank you
Thank you so much. It was a really interesting conversation and I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you.